All right, everyone, if you want to uh, grab your Bible and turn to specifically Ephesians chapter 2, we will also be in 1 Peter 2 today. Those will be our two primary texts. Very briefly, we'll hit Hebrews chapter 10, but if you want to go ahead to Ephesians chapter 2, um, several things we need to do today. Um, And I just realized something. Hopefully we'll be all right here. All right, we're good. All right, so here we go. So as you turn there, though, you all know that I have a tendency to put these things on uh, on screen to make them available to you. So if you want to um, if you want to grab this, just scan the QR code. It'll take you to a place on the website. You can download the notes. By the way, it is just on the church website. If you go to the sermons link, I try to keep those on there as best I can. Lord willing, I'll have the audio from this up later today. We'll see. I will say. Uh, this might be a day that it's particularly important to get the notes. Not that they're any better than normal. I mean, hopefully they're good. Uh, but because very briefly I'm going to address issue one, and I have notes on why it is an abomination, and I want to make sure you have those. Um, a couple of things. One, we are doing this first Sunday series on ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And last month we talked about how the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And um, I want to very briefly, we're going to talk about that more in a second, but we talked about that. This week we're going to talk a little bit about how we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the priesthood of all believers. And then hopefully next month, Lord willing, we're going to address how Christ is head of the church and how authority works within the church as a result of that. And then the plan is maybe in January to talk about ordinances and church discipline and how God has designed some of these other functions of the church. With that in mind, I'm going to very briefly review something from our last meeting, from our last first Sunday, that is. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, as Paul is writing to Timothy about the church, he says that it is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, in the Greek, there is a word that is not used here, and it is a word for foundation. Paul chooses to not use the word for foundation. Instead, he uses this term for pillar. And the idea of a pillar, think about a foundation is something that holds something up that you have to build on. A pillar is something that lifts something up to give it attention, right? A pillar is something that's, uh, everybody come and look at this thing that's on a pillar. That's what a pillar does. So the idea of the church being the pillar and buttress of truth is not to say that we're the foundation of the truth, right? Because Truth is its own foundation. God, you would argue, I would argue, is the foundation of truth, right? But there is a sense in which we as the church have a job of putting the truth on display. That's what we do. Everything we do is about that, right? We do catechism. We're putting the truth on display. When I teach the word, we're putting the truth on display. When we sing songs, we're putting the truth on display. Um, when we take communion, we're putting the truth on display. Everything is about putting truth on display when we gather together, primarily the truth of the gospel. But I will tell you, it is not limited to the message of the gospel. As you know, even in that, when we proclaim the gospel, there is a context to it that we give. For instance, we have to communicate that we are sinners in order to communicate that the gospel has paid our sin debt. Make sense? And so sometimes what we do is we proclaim the basic truth that God has revealed about reality. And that's what I want to do with this very briefly on this thing about issue one. Um, You all know Tuesday is the vote on issue one, and I think I've said already it is absolutely an abomination. 
Uh, I've got this slide, I've, and I've just put this image up here. It's from American Policy Roundtable. It does a pretty good job of outlining all, I mean, this is the entirety of the text of the, of the proposed amendment, um, and then they've just kind of made notes on it. I'll, I'll draw attention to a few key pieces. First of all, uh, one, there are no parental rights in this bill. Essentially, any individual, it uses the word individual, can get any abortion at any time. No limits. Right up to birth, you can get an abortion. Um, additionally, it has some language here related to reproductive care, which is a very broad, very, very broad language. And we are pretty confident that that will be used as a Trojan horse, if even that. I don't even know if you can call it a Trojan horse because it's already bad, right? But to, in order to get some type of child mutilation in there. I mean, this is what they're doing with transgenderism, and it appears that this bill is going to allow for that. I just need to acknowledge, on its face, it is an abomination because it is calling for the abortion of children. Done. However, it adds these things that make it even worse, that I would say, even if you were pro-choice, you should be against these things. Although, you can't expect someone who believes in murdering babies to really be very on point on anything. Uh, I will point out, some of you all remember, right around the time that Roe versus Wade was overturned, praise God for it, there was a news story about a 10-year-old girl who was pregnant, and an abortion doctor in Indiana said, oh, and she couldn't get an abortion in Ohio, so she had to come to Indiana. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I hear of a 10-year-old getting pregnant, my first thought is that didn't happen by anything other than abuse. Instead of calling out the abuser and having this dealt with properly, this legalized murderer used it as a news piece that then was used in part to bring about this very issue one proposal, right? Only recently did the 28-year-old abuser get caught for this. You can look it up. His name is Garrison Fuentes. Uh, the abortion doctor is Dr. Caitlin Bernard. I would recommend looking up both of those stories, but I will tell you, this is what this bill is designed to allow. Because if there is a child getting an abortion, it is because they have been abused in almost every case, right? Um, this will allow for no information given to parents, which would mean that the abuser would be able to continue to perpetuate the abuse, take the child to get an abortion, not only murdering the child in the womb, but allowing him to cover up his crime. So when I say that this is an abomination on top of an abomination with more abomination sprinkled in, this is not hyperbole. It does not get worse than this. And so I'm calling us as the church to be the pillar and ground of truth, and I'm going to say, please, go and vote against this wicked, wicked thing. On top of it, can I just encourage you? Uh, in our church library, we have R.C. Sproul's book on abortion. Um, we, I preached a sermon, and I'll share that on the slide a little bit, about a month, about a month, about a year and a half ago, with some apologetics against abortion. Can I just tell you, we got about a day and a half, you guys. If you know somebody that's got the yes on issue one sign out of you, can you try to have as gracious and kind of a conversation with them as possible to communicate the truth to them? I, I don't, it's not oversaying it to say that there are millions of children on the line. I can't overstate it. Um, I have also noticed, and I don't mean this pridefully, but I was having a conversation this week with someone who was 
Pro Issue 1, and we were talking about some other things, and it hit me how radically ignorant he is, and I don't mean that in a mean way, but people have been taught a narrative and have very little framework for it, and a gracious conversation that forces them to think this through a little bit just might save some lives. I will say I am not optimistic unless it is something that God does here. I, I don't like the, right now the stats are not looking good. It is probably going to pass. Um, and and the truth is, I'll also say Ohio Right to Life is basically working for the enemy right now. They are doing nothing to stand against it. I shouldn't say, virtually nothing. They have blocked so many positive pro-life things. And so the only people I hear really speaking against it are people like us. Um, I'm hearing a little bit about how Ohio right to life here and there. I don't want to bash them on everything, but they knew this was coming and they intentionally didn't do anything about it for months. Anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I just had to draw that into attention. Yes. Just, just some encouragement. Yeah. Ah, yes. Well, this is my encouragement. I'm seeing more doing it too. I'm seeing some no signs. It encourages me because, as we said, the church is the pillar and ground of truth. This is what we're supposed to do, and not just on Sunday. Uh, so do it. Maybe I shouldn't have picked on Ohio Right to Life so much, but I, I was really frustrated. I'm, I'll be honest. When we knew this was coming and they were, they were doing anything but dealing with it, and I'm like, guys, you guys are supposed to be carrying the banner, and you're not. Very little, yeah. Anyway, um, I will draw attention if, on the next slide here. I will just point out, when we see any time in Scripture, and I, I, the, my sermon from last year goes into more detail, but when we see any time in Scripture where we see that God's people are honoring God, we see that God's image is being affirmed, whereas in paganism we see this low value for humanity. Uh, we could say that God commands us to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. We know that the World Economic Forum is saying that the opposite should happen. Uh, we are commanded, commanded to rescue the innocent, brothers and sisters. Um, and whereas the pagans seem to honor infanticide. Uh, we would say that we are commanded to love life and we get to enjoy life as God's people. Uh, but scripture also says that those who do not love God are lovers of death. Uh, God, in order to protect children, uh, to protect people from murder and rape, actually has the death penalty against those things. Whereas we see in paganism, they give hearty approval to these things. Uh, I will just point out that we are designed by God to multiply the image of God for his glory in the earth. And our enemy hates the image of God. So can I encourage you, if you're not married, Praise the Lord. Hopefully you get to get married. Have babies. Um, don't let somebody tell you that you shouldn't have very many kids. Let me just tell you, we are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, younger ones who are a few years from marriage, uh, it will be here before you know it. Find a godly spouse. Get married. Have children. It is a good and honorable thing. Don't let anyone tell you that that is not true. Uh, last thing here, because this is barely even, this is like review of the last sermon and review of another sermon, but I could not talk about this given what's happening Tuesday. I hope this is okay. I hope you're with me. Uh, I will encourage you, if you downloaded the notes, you can click the link. It'll also take you to that sermon uh, that I did about a year ago. And we actually have a lot of apologetic information there that hopefully you can use when you're talking to somebody. So hopefully that is helpful. Um, one other thing here. Uh, you might remember 
Frederick Douglass, our brother in Christ, in the time of kind of pre-Civil War and Civil War era, he has this quote related to slavery. He says, For I saw no chance of being the condition of the freedman, that is, freed slaves, until he could cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him, nor for anybody else in America outside the American government, that to guard, protect, and maintain his liberty, the freedman should have the ballot, that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. Uh, I will just encourage us to remind, remind us a little bit that babies in the womb presently are not being treated as citizens. Uh, I will say I believe we need equal protection clauses that will treat them as citizens of our country. Um, but I will encourage you, maybe hopefully this is, I don't know, maybe this is not encouragement. The ballot box is an important one on Tuesday. Uh, and because this is a proposal not just for a bill, not just for a law, but for a constitutional amendment, it will effectively circumvent any real chance of the jury box making any difference here. I will tell you, I hope it doesn't leave us to option three. But we, we have to face reality that things are getting serious. Please vote on Tuesday. All right. With that in mind, some of us might be thinking, Dan, why in the world and all that's going on are we going to preach a sermon on the, on the church? Right? Does that seem a little odd that in all of this stuff that I wouldn't just kind of focus on, oh, let's talk about life today and all that. All that's important. Um, but can I tell you, as much as ever, it is important that we understand the role of the church. Because as you, will, as you maybe have noticed, when we looked through the book of Judges, that it was a failure of the priesthood that seemed to be leading the way before things fell apart beyond that. And so today what we want to do is talk about our role as part of the body of Christ, as part of the priesthood of all believers. So, everybody with me? Good to go. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Uh, first, I'm going to pray. Lord, would you be with us today uh, that you would be lifted up, illuminate the word of God, that I would teach it clearly, that we would understand it well. Anoint me as I preach. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 19, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, which is primarily made up of Gentiles. And he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and the, uh, the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together to a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now notice, Paul is using two metaphors here. One is one of citizenship. Now, before this time, before the advent of the church, if you were going to be part of the people of God, you were going to be a citizen of Israel. But now, as Christ has come, he is perfect Israel, and anyone who believes in him is true Israel. You get grafted in to the family of God, and it's a good thing. So he's using this language of like, you're a citizen with us, man. This is good news. Your kingdom is now the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Uh, but he's also using this language of household of God. It's temple language that we're going to see reiterated, not just in Paul's writing here, but we're going to see it in Peter's writing today, and I would argue in Hebrews, which depending on who you ask, could be Paul, could be one of Paul's disciples. It's a whole thing. Don't even get me started. But I want to note a couple of things. First of all, 
He refers here to Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Now, specifically, you would use a cornerstone to kind of set your building project from there on out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done a whole lot of building. Some of you have. But you lay the cornerstone. It would be this large stone. You would put it right where you want to. And so the next stone would be built off of that. If you've ever built a wall, I used to build retaining walls. You've got to get that first stone just right. And then you build off of that. That kind of sets the tone for the rest of it. This is Jesus Christ. He is our chief cornerstone. And then notice the language that's used here, the foundation of the, of the apostles and the prophets. Can somebody say, what is it that the apostles and the prophets had in common? Anybody know? What did they do that actually is something that they did in common? Witness to God, right? Now, in context, he's referring to the idea of they are actually proclaiming the word of God, which, of course, we know is written down in Scripture. So when he's saying the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he is talking about their proclamational effort, but that would tie itself into exactly the, the inscribing of the word of God. And so while he's not explicitly saying the word of God here, when he says the apostles and the prophets, it is a reference to that which is written down in Scripture. Awesome. So notice here we have Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets have uh, inscribed the word of God for us. They, and of course, in that time, they were, the apostles were still alive, and so they're talking, right? But the message of the gospel is getting laid down. And then he uses this language of us being joined together, growing into a holy temple. And the language here is that the people of God, believers, are like stones in this temple that are fit together to be the household of the Holy Spirit, which I've illustrated with a little bit of flame in the middle, because that's what you do. That's how you illustrate the Holy Spirit. Anyway, and remember from our last message from 1 Timothy that then the whole thing is here to lift up the truth of the gospel. You guys like my graphic? I worked on this a little bit. I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of this graphic. Anyway, so notice then, there should be some things that kind of play out in this. We should be calling back to some Old Testament role of the temple. Now keep in mind, in the Old Testament, uh, everything that was happening there is pointing forward to the new covenant reality, like every bit of it. And so what was happening? The Holy Spirit dwelled in the temple. Does anybody know how we knew that the Holy Spirit was in the Holy of Holies? Think like tabernacle era. How did you know that God was there? Pillar of cloud, pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. Fire, smoke, cloud tend to be the things that illustrate. Did you know that when Solomon builds the temple, that's how the temple is initially consecrated, is the Holy Spirit goes in and you see fire, flame, smoke, and it's like, okay, this is, this is the real deal. What happens in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? Flames, Flames of fire over their heads. The indication when they moved into the tabernacle was that, oh, look, the Holy Spirit is here. God is here. Then when they moved, when they opened the temple, oh, look, fire and flame, fire and smoke, the, God is here. And then in the new covenant, when the people of God are gathered on the day of Pentecost, that is the church, that is the new tabernacle, and here God fills his church with his Holy Spirit. You guys, it's pretty cool. That's part of why God, in his word, constantly refers back, how do we know that you're, we're, we're God's children? The Spirit testifies with our spirit, right? It's the Holy Spirit in us that is saying, you are God's child, I'm here. Now think about something else. We're going to go into this more when we get into 1 Peter. But in the Old Testament, if you wanted to meet with God, where would you go? You'd go to the temple, all right? If you, if you needed to hear the word of God, where would you go? 
Go to the temple. Now, I want to be careful not to overemphasize what is clearly a metaphor, but there is a sense in which now all that God was accomplishing in the tabernacle, in the temple in the Old Testament, he is now accomplishing through his people collectively. Does that maybe make this kind of important? Like what we're doing even right now becomes particularly important. So hang with me. We're going to jump over to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more. But, yeah, actually, I won't go there yet. I have things that I want to get to, and I'm just like, so let's go to 1 Peter 2. All right. So Peter, writing also, by the way, to the church. We believe at this time Peter knows that he's relatively close to his death. Our men's Bible study just went through 1 and 2 Peter. It was a good time. Um, We believe Peter was probably aware of the fact that he's getting close to the end of his life here. Um, And he writes this. He says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so we're going to dig into this a little bit, but it should be notable that here Peter, as he's writing First Peter, is using very similar language to Paul in Ephesians. That's not an accident. This metaphor of the people as the temple, metaphor is almost too weak of a word. This language of us as the body of Christ, us as the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit, is not just a throwaway metaphor. This is a pretty central metaphor. So, a few things that Peter tells us to do here. Um, He tells us, one, to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now think about, what what does malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and slander do? What would would you say happens in a body of believers when those things are brought in? Division, all right? Now keeping in mind, this is in the context of a temple. And I I don't want to stretch the metaphor too much, and I don't think I am, but what he's saying here is get rid of those things that cause division in the temple for crying out loud. You are the temple. Don't go ripping the stones apart because the temple needs to be the temple to accomplish what God wants to through the temple. Sorry, that sounded redundant, but this is reality. All right. Second thing he says is to replace that those things, the malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. By the way, that's not just a list to be a list. I think it's worth thinking through those things. Do I... Do I ever have malice for a brother in Christ? I need to put that away. Am I ever hypocritical? Do I ever pretend when I come together that I'm doing better than I really am? I need to put that away. Do I envy my brothers and sisters in Christ for how they're doing or what they're doing? I need to put that away. Do I ever slander a brother or sister in Christ? That has to be put away, right? And it has to be replaced with the word of God in order for you as an individual and the temple together to grow up in Christ. Notice, we're putting away all these things. How do we build the temple? We build it with the word of God. How do we build up individually in our spirit? We build it with the word of God. This is not rocket science, but does it, it makes sense, right? This works. This is why we wash the body with the word of God every Sunday, right? This is, 
Jesus says that that's what he does with his bride. And so he's given us his word. This is what we do. We build it up. We nourish it with the word of God. We wash it with the word of God. Everything comes back to the word of God. And then notice he says this, as you come to Christ, the chief cornerstone, or he might not have said chief cornerstone. Now, it's an interesting thing because as we'll see later on in the passage, Peter uses this language of a, of a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And what is set up here is that either Christ is going to be the corner, he's a stone either way. He's either going to be the cornerstone that you build your life upon and that you set your whole life against in a good way, like you're, I'm measuring my life to Christ, I'm checking everything with him, he's my Lord, he's my King, or he will be the stumbling stone that you will trip over as you careen into hell. But there is no in-between. It is either Christ is your Lord and he is the cornerstone of your life or he is the tripping stone that will be the final thing that you fall into hell over. It's pretty simple and Peter does not really punch, pull punches. He just kind of throws it right at you. There's some benefit to Peter. We think about Peter, by the way. You know, he's the guy that's like, oh, cuts off a guy's ear, right? Always the first person saying something. And how we see where Peter, at the end of the book of John, Jesus is, first of all, restoring him after he's denied. And then he's saying, Peter, feed my sheep, right? And Peter is given this, of course, he already had a spiritual role, but he has this shepherding role here. Um, And we see it kind of play out here in 1 Peter, but he still doesn't pull punches. He's still Peter, but he's still delivering this stuff in his pastoral and yet direct way. Anyway, so now he's brought up two things. And of course, we recognize that metaphors tend to get used doubly in Scripture. But two things that he said, he's referred to us as holy priests and living stones. The implication of being holy priests, uh, we recognize in the Old Testament, a priest represented God to man and man to God, offering sacrifices, handling the word of God, and also serving even in administrative tasks. I think something people forget is there were there were priests that that was their job. It's like I'm going to clean this thing over here, and I would do. And other ones that are like I'm doing this sacrifice. They had administrative tasks as well as what we would call ministry tasks, and yet it was still a priestly work, regardless. Then you have this idea that he's also bringing up of the living stones we've already talked about, that the people of God together make up the temple of God and that within the temple is where the Holy Spirit dwells. I want to be really clear. I think it is godly and right and a good interpretation of Scripture to say that the Holy Spirit dwells in you as a believer individually. That's clear. But we're also seeing this language in which the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us collectively as a body. And there's something cool about that. It seems to have with it this idea that there is something unique that happens when we gather together. And I don't think it's some mystical, like, ooh, the Spirit is here in a unique way. But have you noticed that when you leave, I hope you notice, when you leave on Sunday, your spirit is built up in a way different than what happens during the week, right? I can be in the word during the week. I can be encouraged. Something good is happening. But I'll tell you, nothing is like gathering with the believers. There's something that happens here as I am ministered to by the other priests, okay? Oh, I almost said my famous phrase. I'm working on it. All right. All right. I want to draw attention to two things here. This is just a very brief contrast of Old Testament priests versus New Testament priests. And I want to be so careful because we have a tendency sometimes to try to carry a metaphor over and really like stretch it too far. We'll do the same thing with parables where we extrapolate it out. And I'm like, I'm not sure it was getting at that. But I think it's worth noting some of the things that the priests did in the Old Testament. Look at what they're doing in the New Testament and then keep this in the back of your brain. 
Because in a little bit, we're going to be in Hebrews 10. I promise I don't have too long of a sermon, so hang with me. We're going to be in Hebrews 10, and they're going to be like, hopefully, light bulb moments. We'll see. All right, so Leviticus 4, 32 through 35, it says, If he, that is a sinner, brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, uh, which is representing his sin transferring over, by the way, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. Uh, sacrificial system, by the way, a very bloody affair. Lots of blood. Whew. Almost as if we're supposed to recognize that like our sin costs something. right? Um, not almost. It's the real deal. Verse 35, And all its fat shall be removed as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, now that is not the only role of a priest, but that's a pretty important role of the priest. He's actively involved in taking part in the sacrifice here. Um, and the lamb is sacrificed, and he's essentially, I'm putting blood here, I'm putting blood there. We're doing this whole thing to show God has covered your sin. All right Now, as we know, all of this is pointing forward to the perfect sacrificial lamb that is Jesus Christ. Cool? Anytime you see something in the Old Testament like this, it should be pointing forward, and hopefully that reminds us of this. Now, I want you to notice something here, though, that we're going to read on down in a minute in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Who is it that has done this? I mean, this is the easy Sunday school one. Jesus, right? Um, he has called us out of darkness and into light. How was he able to do that? Because he's the perfect lamb of God, right? Now, I recognize that this language here is not just saying, it's proclaiming excellencies, it's not mentioning the atonement right here specifically, but that's built into it. Whereas the Old Testament priest is taking part in the sacrificial work that points forward to Jesus, the New Testament priestly work that all of us have as believers is pointing back to the sacrificial work of Jesus. Can you notice? Old Testament, you're taking part in the sacrifice. New Testament, you're reminding everybody of the sacrifice that has already taken place. Everything is coming back to Jesus. And in the Old Testament, everything is pointing forward to Jesus. Now, I could go in a while. This, I'm just going to mention this as a sidebar. But a lot of us are like, okay, so what are these spiritual sacrifices that I'm supposed to do? Uh, I would just highlight there are several places in Scripture where spiritual sacrifices are mentioned. Uh, we see in Romans 12 that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The idea is that I am living continually for the Lord, and so that even my lifestyle is a sacrifice for him. Praise the Lord. Maybe that's what Peter is referring to in part. I'm, I want to be very cautious because I... I'm not certain exactly what Peter has in mind, but I think it's these kinds of things, and we'll talk more about it in a minute. Um, Philippians 4 refers to believers meeting one another's needs. Uh, Hebrews 13 talks about praising uh, and works and sharing with one another, essentially meeting one another's needs, worshiping the Lord together. Um, we see general edification where I'm building one another up in Hebrews 10. 
Uh, Philippians 2 refers to this Christ-like humility where I'm putting others first. Could we maybe say that all of this is, is kind of a spiritual sacrifice? I think so. Um, I think it's reasonable. Uh, we see in 2 Timothy where those, there are some who even give up their lives to spare a brother and minister to a brother in Christ. Um, greater love hath no one than this. Praise the Lord. There seems to be this sense, though, in which Peter, when he is calling us to do the sacrifices of the ministry... The idea is as we gather together, we are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ primarily through the gospel in everything that we do. When we take communion, and can we just, maybe I could say this cautiously. Can you imagine though, when we come together, we, we believe in the priesthood of all believers here, right? Can you imagine if we showed up on a Sunday and there was no one to open us in prayer? Um, there was no one prepared music. Uh, no one had prepared any food. Uh, no one had prepared communion. There was no child to lead us in, uh, in catechism. Uh, there was no sermon, right? There was no one to greet you at the door and hear how your week was and remind you of God's love through the image of God looking at you saying, Sister, you are loved. I'm so sorry for the hard week you had. Or praise God, great news on that job change. This is wonderful, right? Part of the spiritual work that we have going on is that every individual, when we come together, is holding up the good news of the gospel, is proclaiming the excellencies of Christ simply in our interactions with one another. And some of those are upfront interactions, like you're preaching or you're leading music. And some of those are those things like right in the back of the room where the sweet, kind woman who barely says anything but has paid attention to the prayer requests and takes them before the throne during the week. Can I just tell you, that is a spiritual sacrifice. Uh, when you are weary and you're hurting, and I think of, I think of people who have gift of encouragement and they just come along like, I mean, come on, Denise. Uh, when I've had my heart just hurting and Denise is just come and encouraged, or I think of Dan very graciously sending words of encouragement, saying a kind word, right? I think of all of these little things. Think of, I think of quiet things that like Noah doesn't say a word, clicks on the slides every Sunday. Brothers and sisters, this is spiritual service. This is the sacrifice that we do when we come together. And can I just think for a moment, it takes, there. everyone has a role in this, right? And I believe this is why he uses priesthood language and temple stone language, because can you imagine if the people of God had come to Jerusalem on the day of atonement and you got there and the temple had just decided that there was too many things going on, right? Got to get home for the Browns game. We're going to go to Cedar Point. I don't know. I just didn't feel like it today. And it's like, and then the priests were like, oh, you know, I just I, I forgot and I didn't, and I slept in and I did this thing. Can you imagine? And I don't mean to like trivialize. I think just the opposite. It's so important. You cannot have a temple without the stones assembling. You cannot have the ministry without the priests here. And in the new covenant, we are all stones and we are all priests. And we have to get here because that little tiny thing that you do means something. Cool? All right, reading on. So, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says, so, uh, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that is the build, that, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay. Uh, I want to I take a very brief... Oh, no, I just messed this up. <laughs> Sorry. All right, I'm good. It's bad when I'm using an iPad and I click on something and it takes me right off my notes. I was scared for a second. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm okay. Sorry. I want us to think for a moment 
of this language here of they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Now, I recognize I'm coming from a Reformed perspective where we believe, as Scripture says, that God has planned everything that is happening. But verses like this give me comfort because the idea here is that Christ himself is a stumbling block to those who do not believe. And that those who do not believe and stumble over it, that God even had that in his plan. And yet he contrasts that with those of us who do believe, because this stone that has been rejected, that has been stumbled over, he has become the chief cornerstone, and he is the cornerstone of each of our lives, praise God. Without going too far, Peter is writing to a church that is scattered throughout the world, being persecuted at this point by both Rome and the Jewish leaders, and he's saying, this Christ that you follow, that has been rejected by everybody else, they are going to be put to shame. It's going to be really bad for them, and you will not. So I want to be careful not, because the, the scope of this is broad, right? There's a lot that this applies to. But can I tell you, when I am watching what we are seeing in our world right now, as people are actively rejecting Christ, stomping on images of him, stomping on anything related to God's word and his truth, attacking his image, even through an attempt to codify into constitutional law the murder of his image, when I see all that, I take some comfort in knowing, like, they are going to be put to shame. They will stumble, they are stumbling over the rock of offense, and hopefully they'll repent, but let me just tell you, we will not be put to shame. Could we even maybe notice also the insanity of those who reject God? That they do things that do not even benefit them. They mutilate their own bodies. They put themselves to shame in the open square. We watch what happens. We're like, this is insanity. They look beyond foolish. They are being put to shame. And every chance we get to preach the gospel in grace, brothers, is a chance to bring them back. But let me just tell you, they are being put to shame, and we will not be. Anyway. As we continue on, I'm almost done here. He says, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, as we read before, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your con conduct among the Gentiles, which is a euphemism for non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay. Um, again, I'm this has a much broader application. I am bringing it right to the things that we're dealing with now. Um, but you recognize that if you are standing against things like abortion and child mutilation through transgender, you are called a bigot. You are called a hateful and wicked person. If you are not following the current trend to somehow support Hamas, a terror organization, somehow you're seen as evil and mean. Have you guys noticed how quickly this insanity that somehow, because I'm not going along with it, I'm the bad guy? Notice, though, we are commanded to, one, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The idea here is don't engage in the lifestyle of licentiousness that brings shame upon the name of Christ, even though you might be tempted to, even though you might be called a hater for not doing it. Be faithful. This means don't engage in the foolish things of this world. 
how many times are we seeing those who would be faithful otherwise, doctrinally sound, that we find out, oh, they had a porn issue and they had this other sexual addiction or some greed issue or some other financial swindling or whatever you want to say. And he is saying, don't get involved in the passions of the flesh. Don't do that. Instead, keep your conduct honorable. If you are paid for a service, do the job. If you are paid for a product, deliver on the product. If you have a contract, honor the contract. If you borrow your neighbor's rake, give it back. It's these basic things that give us an honorable name so that a day will... Notice the language here is that when they speak against you as evildoers, because they're going to try to, that on the day of visitation, which is probably a reference to the day of the Lord, on the day of visitation, they're going to have to glorify God and say, you know what, these people were faithful the whole time, and I was the one that was the wretch, right? Pay attention to this. Notice it says then, let your good works glorify God. Can you seek to be faithful? I will tell you, I, I am sitting amongst neighbors who are very pro-abortion. And it's frustrating. New neighbors moved in that are sinful in other ways. And God has called me to be gracious and loving. Not lying, not deceitful, not covering up their sin, but gracious and loving so that the message of the gospel stands and so that he receives glory. And that's what we're doing. So if I could just draw attention very last year to Hebrews 10. As we close out here in Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 25, we see this priesthood language brought through once more. And the writer of Hebrews, who, by the way, there's a big debate on who wrote Hebrews. It sure sounds like Paul, but it doesn't have the earmarks of Paul because he always says, hey, it's me, you guys. There's a good chance that this was one of Paul's disciples who have written down sermon notes from Hebrews. That's what we kind of believe it. That's why it sounds like Paul. So whatever, you can think it's Paul. You can not think it's Paul. It's all right. We know it was a faithful, documented, everybody back then knew who it came from. We just don't know now because nobody put a name on it. All that said, pay attention to this. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, what is that? What is these holy places? He's talking about the holy of holies, right? That blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. We have confidence entered. Do you know that the high priest in the Old Testament only got to go in there on certain special occasions? And now we get to enter boldly. Carrying on. This is by the new and living way that he opened uh, for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, that is Christ, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You guys seeing the similarities here to when we read in Leviticus? This is all priest language. And he's like, your heart's been, it's like you've been sprinkled with the blood of the lamb that was once sprinkled on the altar, right? He's the fulfillment. It's on you. You get to enter in the Holy of Holies with confidence. Says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. It's a message of the gospel, by the way. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. All right, can you maybe notice the connection here? Here the language of both Paul and Peter is come together as the body of Christ, your living stones and your priests. And here in Hebrews, it says, the Holy of Holies has been opened. Walk in with all confidence because the work has already been done by Christ. Now do the work. Don't neglect meeting together. You cannot have a temple if the stones are scattered. 
come together. And that's the message of Hebrews. That's the message of 1 Peter 2. It's the message of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Come together so that you can minister to one another and be ministered to. Totally neglected to get books recommended, but I will draw attention to our cool library. We do have some books on ecclesiology there. I recommend them. And if you're looking for a suggestion, let me know. Totally forgot to create a slide on it. Sorry. Let's pray. And then who is on for the gospel? My bride is. All right, Father God, thank you so much. Um, I cannot overstate the greatness of what you have done in allowing us to enter into the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit that once once dwelled, Lord, you dwelt in that Holy of Holies, and hardly anybody got to come to you. It was so limited, it was so barely, and yet you pointed forward through sacrifice to what Christ would do. Lord, when we talk about you being the author and finisher of our faith, um, it's beyond comprehension. We're saved, we're redeemed, we get to boldly come into where the high priest only barely with trepidation got to come in, lest he be struck dead. And yet, Lord, we get to walk in and know you as our Father, with Christ as our Big brother, for lack of a better term, Lord, we come in there by his shed blood. We get to know you. So, Lord, may we not neglect the coming together. May we understand the radical importance of what we do when we come together. We lift up the gospel. We hold fast to the truth. And we build one another up through our acts of spiritual service that might at times seem so small and yet have great profundity because of their connection to the gospel and to the work that you are doing by your Holy Spirit in and through us. So when we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come and will be done, we mean it, and we seek to live it even now. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.